Well, again, as we said at the opening, uh, this is the last Sunday of 2020, and rightfully so, is met with enthusiastic applause. And uh, I think 2020 was a year that began with a lot of promise. Uh, and there's something kind of spectacular about 2020, right? Those two numbers in a row. Uh, like 1919, I'm sure 1919, everybody thought this was going to be a stellar year. 1818, I don't know, 1717, what, I don't know. But uh, it didn't quite go out the way it came in, did it? And so I, a couple of uh, months ago, I came across a video, and I thought, I'm going to save that for the last weekend of 2020, because I think this video, it's just kind of funny, we'll have a little fun together, sort of epitomizes 2020. It's short, it's only about 20 seconds long. But what it is, is it, it's a test run of one of the very first autonomous racing vehicles. So I want to show you how this test run went. I don't know if this feels like 2020 to you. <laughs> it looked good, you know, that, that's a, that looked like a really nice racing vehicle, but boom, right into the wall. So uh, <laughs> we're praying 2021, they get that vehicle right back up on the starting line and it goes straight. That's what we're, we're, we're praying for. And I don't mean to, by the way, to uh, gloss over many of the Lord's blessings in 2020. There was many, many blessings this year as well. You know, the Lord shows himself faithful and his light shines that much brighter in the darkness. But I think we're all looking forward to uh, closing that chapter and beginning the next one. And so today, we're going to be doing just that as well, closing one chapter. And through this season of Advent, we've been asking that question, what are you waiting for? And we began our sermon series one week prior to Advent. And so today, as Advent is technically closed, we'll go ahead and do the same pattern of one week past Advent to close our series this weekend. What are you waiting for? Now, each week, we've been looking through the Scriptures at the accounts of God's people through redemptive history, and we said that waiting is just sort of part and parcel of what it means to be a Jesus follower and what we could learn as different saints experience waiting in different ways. But today, we're going to answer the question, what are you waiting for, in a very concrete way. In other words, we're going to actually answer the question, what are you waiting for? As we look into the future, what we're waiting for has something that we can look forward and go, that's what we're waiting for. And so today, we're going to answer that question, at least in part. You know, in, in a 20, 25-minute time, you can't answer that completely. But we want to begin to answer the question, what is the object, as we'll read in our reading, of our hope as Christians? And so our reading today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8. And so if you're able to stand, I invite you to do that. Uh, this is coming from verses 24 and 25, which is the Apostle Paul talking about the hope of the Christian faith. And he says here that hope that is seen is not hope. So what we're talking about today is something that we're looking towards, but we don't yet see. For who hopes for what he sees? I don't have it memorized. There it is. But if you hope for what you do not see, <laughs> which for me was this next slide, <laughs> we wait for it with patience. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our Lord remains forever. Please. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word to us. We thank you, God, that you desire to be known. And so you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus and through your holy scriptures. 
And we pray, Holy Spirit, that in our time together in the Scriptures that you be present with us. Would you comfort us and confront us and change us because we are not able to do that in and of ourselves. And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what are you waiting for? What are we waiting for as followers of Christ? And so we want to look towards three things that we're waiting for as the object of our hope at the return of Jesus. The first thing we'll look at is the hope that we have of resurrection. The second thing we'll look at is the hope that we have in judgment. And the third thing we'll look at is the hope that we have of new creation. And actually that goes in a bit of a logical order as Jesus says the dead will be raised first and then the judgment and then the renewal of all things. So we begin by asking this question, what are you waiting for? What we're waiting for is the hope of resurrection. And resurrection means, just quite literally, the raising up to raise from the dead. The hope is, is that assuming the Lord Jesus doesn't come back uh, before our time on our earthly journey is over, and he could come back before this sermon is over. Wouldn't that be amazing? Who needs this sermon when you can have the Lord Jesus? Then we will die. And our bodies will cease. But our hope is that when Jesus returns, we will be raised with new bodies. Because resurrection, or the hope of resurrection, is the hope of a physical, humanly resurrection. Physical resurrection. And in that sense, it's a little bit different than what many people conceive of as the Christian hope. And what I'm about to say, I don't mean to diminish in terms of its goodness, And that is, for many people, the hope of the Christian is that when they die, they go to heaven. And that is the object of our hope. And again, as I said, I don't mean to diminish that. Because as the Apostle Paul says, is to be absent from the body is to what? Be present with the Lord. Now, is that going to be wonderful? Yeah, to be present with our Lord is wonderful. Uh, Jesus tells a parable of what we call Lazarus and the rich man, and both of those die, and we read about Lazarus, who is being comforted in what Jesus calls the bosom of Abraham. This is a good place, so I, I don't mean to diminish that. What I'm saying is, is that when we die and go to heaven, that is not the object of our hope. We aren't done yet, because the hope is the hope of resurrection. We read about this in Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul is talking about the object of our hope in this way. He says there that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the first fruits, uh, the down payment of our future inheritance. He says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. That is the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. The redemption of our bodies. This is something that each of the gospel writers was very keen to communicate about the resurrection of Jesus himself. Jesus was not resurrected as purely a spirit. He wasn't cast for the friendly Messiah. He was a physical human being raised from the dead. And the gospel writers want you to know that. Particularly the gospel writer John. 
John was writing a little later, most likely, and if you look at his gospel as well as his letters, particularly 1 John, uh, we see that he's writing against an early church heresy, which is called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism had a belief that was related to Platonism, going back to the Greek philosopher Plato. And Plato had a belief uh, that the core part of a human person is their soul or spirit, and that the body or physicalness is the manifestation of something lesser than. Uh, So for Plato, when a person died, they were set free. They were liberated. So Plato referred to the body as a prison. He quite literally called it the prison house of the soul. Now that is not what Christians believe. Christians do not believe that the body is the prison house of the soul. Christians believe that God created human beings in his likeness and in his image and it is good and a human being is a physical being composed of both body and soul together. And so when you die, that isn't being set free, that is violence done to the human person. It's not good. And the hope of the Christian is that one day when Jesus returns, we will have new bodies and our soul will be reunited with our bodies and we will become fully human once again. And as I said, this was something that the gospel writers were very keen to communicate about the Lord Jesus, but not everybody believed it. In fact, one of the ones who didn't believe it was one of the disciples who was not there when Jesus initially revealed himself, named Thomas. And we read about this in Gospel of John chapter 20, where uh, the disciples are trying to tell Thomas about what they saw. And here's what happens. It says that Thomas uh, was one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And you can read about that earlier in John 20. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord risen from the dead physically. And here's what Thomas says, look, forget it, look, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers and touch him and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. Sometimes when you talk to modern, I say modern people, uh, you know, this side of electricity and nuclear power or whatever, they go, oh yeah, look. Back in the olden days, what are the olden days? No, not the 50s. I'm talking about the olden days, first century. Those people were a bunch of superstitious uh, people who would believe anything. So, yeah, they believe anything, including someone raised from the dead. Well, here's proof that that, you know, being raised from the dead is just as fantastical to believe today as it was in the first century. Thomas goes, look, guys, you can all tell me what you think, but as far as I'm concerned, you probably had some kind of group hallucination or something. You just wanted it to be true. You saw something you wanted to be there, but I don't believe it. And unless I can see him and touch him, I ain't buying it. And Jesus, in his mercies, reveals himself to Thomas. And here's what Jesus tells him. Put your finger here. Touch me. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Physically touch me. I am a raised from the dead, physical human being. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas has a very famous response to this. Remember what Thomas' response is to this? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Very famous response. Because Jesus was not only fully human, but Jesus 
was and is fully God, fully divine. And so what are we waiting for? The object of our hope is that our bodies will be made like his body. That our resurrection, our resurrection bodies will be made like his resurrection body. We read about this in 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul says that which is perishable must put on the imperishable. We read that that which is mortal must put on immortality. And earlier in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says that our hope and what we wait for is exactly to be made like him. Here's what he says. He says he's talking to these uh, Philippian Christians, so they're part of a Roman town of Philippi, and the first thing that Paul's going to tell them is, your citizenship isn't to Rome. Don't see yourself and identify yourself as Romans first and foremost. Your citizenship, as he says, is in heaven where we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is he going to do when he comes? He's going to transform your body. He's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And what is Jesus' glorious body like? His new resurrection body that's imperishable and immortal. Well, there's a bit of a mystery there. And it's just really interesting to think, and uh, I'm really looking forward, I'm sure you are too, to see what that will be like. In John chapter 20, when Jesus reveals himself twice to the disciples, it says emphatically that the doors were shut and locked, and yet Jesus appears in their midst, physically appears. Do you know what that means? Can he walk through walls? I, I don't know. But he's physical, and he's raised from the dead. There also seems to be a sense where Jesus was, all, was in one way recognizable, but in another way not recognizable. So something about his resurrection body was a little different. We see this in the book of Luke, the gospel, when there's two disciples that are on their way to Emmaus, Jesus comes alongside and begins to talk with them. Do those disciples recognize him? They don't. Eventually they do. When they break bread together, the same language that's used of the Lord's Supper is Jesus breaks bread. His identity is revealed. And then what happens to Jesus? He's just not there. We see the same kind of phenomena uh, in the example, now this is going back to the Gospel of John again, uh, when Mary encounters Jesus at the tomb. When Mary shows up to the tomb, which of course that roll, the stone has been rolled away and Jesus is no longer there, Mary looks into the tomb, which is empty, and she sees two figures dressed in white, one sitting at the head where Jesus' head would have been, the other sitting where Jesus' feet would have been, and she's trying to inquire of them what they did with Jesus' body. They are telling her that he has risen when she turns around and looks and sees someone who she assumes is the gardener. And who is the gardener? Jesus. Now, did Mary know Jesus? Had Mary hung out with Jesus for years and years and years? So isn't it interesting that when she turns to see him, she does not instantly recognize him? But Jesus reveals himself, and all of a sudden, it's Jesus, and then she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, right, which means teacher. So there's a mystery here, but it's the object of our hope. The object of our hope is that we will be resurrected. And those who are here, that the older you are, don't you long for those times when your body is no longer broken down? Don't you long? I mean, I know, Bill, you can still do the slalom thing on one ski, but I bet you if you were younger, you could do it even faster, couldn't you? And someday you will. 
I'm looking forward to that. You'll always be able to outdo me there, I'm sure. So we look forward to our physical resurrection. The other thing we look forward to is the object of our hope is judgment. Now, this may seem counterintuitive. How could judgment? Isn't judgment either bad or scary? Uh, Why would judgment be an object of our hope? Now, the Scriptures teach that Jesus will indeed, and God will indeed, judge. This is part of the, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus will return to judge, depending on how you say it, the quick and the dead, right, or the living and the dead. Uh, We read that in the book of Ecclesiastes as well. It says that God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. God will return to judge. In fact, this is what we see in the book of Revelation as the cry of saints in heaven. As we said a second ago, yeah, heaven's going to be wonderful, but heaven is not the end. And we read in the book of Revelation that saints in heaven are still waiting, and they're crying out to God. Revelation chapter 6, where we see these seals being opened, these scrolls. Uh, Once the fifth one is opened, we read this in Revelation 6. He opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So these are saints in the Lord who have died and are in heaven. And what are they doing? They're crying out. And what are they crying out? How long? How long? They're waiting. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge? Till you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. They're crying out for God to come in judgment of heaven and earth. Why? Because when God returns in judgment, and when he renders his eternal, always true verdict, he will rid all of heaven and earth, anything spiritual, physical, and everything else, he will rid it of everything that's evil. All evil, all sin, all rebellion, and anything that would cause sadness, decay, and death, and destruction will be cast off. And we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. Come and judge that everything evil would be done away with. Now how is it that the Christian can cry out for Jesus to come and judge? Why is that an object of hope for us? We cry out and hope for that because someone has gone before us in our judgment. Someone has been judged in our place. If it was not for the Lord Jesus, when judgment comes, we'd be crying out as we see of those in the book of Revelation for the mountains to fall on them rather than face the wrath of God. There's a reason why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is sweating blood and the thought that he would drink to the dregs the portion of the cup of the wrath of Almighty God. But we do not have to face that judgment because Jesus has borne it in our place. And so our hope is in resurrection. Our hope is in the judgment of God. And finally, our hope, what are you waiting for, is new creation. We are waiting for God to renew and bring a new heavens and a new earth. As we read in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, these are the promises of God that according to his promise, we are waiting. 
and we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God promises to renew his entire created order where righteousness, as we read, the knowledge and the righteousness and the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. We read about this as well in the book of Romans chapter 8 again. Romans chapter 8, a very, very beautiful and important chapter in your Bible. There we read that not only is humanity waiting, we're talking about humanity, of course, today, but it says that creation is also waiting. Think about when we uh, sing joy to the world, joy to the world, the Lord has come, uh, and it says, and heaven and nature sing, heaven and nature. Creation is part of what God loves. God loves his created order. He has made it and he's declared it good, and it says in Romans chapter 8 that creation itself is also waiting. in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And when will the children of God be revealed? When they are raised from the dead and the judgment and the verdict of God is given. Who are the sheep? Who are the goats? Because until Jesus comes to render that verdict, come over here, sheep, to my right, and come over here, goats, to my left, that will reveal who indeed are the children of God. And so until that moment, creation is waiting in eager expectation. Why? Because it says that creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We read about this, of course, in the book of Revelations, chapter 21 and 22, where the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, the heavenly holy of holies comes down to fill creation, and we have a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, and there no longer will be a creation subjected to death and decay anymore. Praise God. Now, each of these three things, resurrection, judgment, and new creation, are not ends in themselves. They are pointers for something even greater. And what is the thing that's even greater than these three things? The things that we were actually made for. What were you made for? All these things and ourselves too are pointers toward the glory of God. God is about the bringing about of his own glory. And whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's a catechism of the Reformed faith. This is a Reformed church. There's a catechism of the Reformed faith called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Catechism just means question and answer. And the very first one, it's a beautiful question. What is the chief end of man? What is man really all about? Why did God create you and me? And we might say, why did God create anything? What's man's chief end? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's a beautiful answer. John Piper would want us to say, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So we see that the object of our hope has a concrete thing that we look towards. What are you waiting for? We are waiting for our resurrection We're waiting for the imperishable. 
to replace the perishable. We're waiting for our mortality to be swallowed up in immortality. We're waiting for the judgment of God to come, for God to rid the world of all evil and sin and rebellion and death. Even it says that death will be swallowed up in victory, and we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell forever in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and all to his glory. Amen? Even as we close and pray, this helps us, I think. I hope it helps you. I hope this is an encouragement to you. Because as the Apostle Peter says, that all that we experience now, he says, are light and momentary afflictions. Light and momentary compared to the glory of what will be revealed to us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful beyond measure for the hope that we have in Christ, that we have our sins forgiven by because of the blood of the Lamb, which has been sprinkled upon us to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. And therefore, the judgment of God is not something that we are afraid of, but something that we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And Lord, we thank you that you promised to raise us up and that we will have bodies that are imperishable. We thank you that you will raise us up, that we will have bodies that are immortal, that we will eat from the tree of life, promised to our first parents, but will finally be given in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation where righteousness dwells. All to your glory. And until then, we thank you that the light and momentary afflictions that we now face are not even worth being compared to the glories that will be revealed to us there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.